0: You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Chapter 13. We're going to look at the last few uh, verses we're coming towards the end of our studies in Second Corinthians, and in fact, it's taken us about 50 weeks to do this. And when I began this, I said that it really was a letter for the church in Scotland and what we need for the church. And it, these few verses, uh, St. Harry, before we come in, we often skip over endings. You, we know the benediction here, and we'll look at that next week, but the bits towards the end, we feel that they're just... Maybe not that connected to us, but I hope that you will see that it really is, because I believe that what we look at this morning is what we need in this church, in this city, and in this country. It's kind of a, a farewell manifesto for the church uh, from Paul. He perhaps didn't know if he was going to see them again. He hoped to see them, but uh, he wanted to summarize the whole situation. He does it in this way. Finally, brothers, goodbye. Aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints send their greetings. God is concerned with quality. There are churches and Christians. We can be very immature, shallow superficial, and trite. That doesn't interest the Lord. He wants us to have depth and maturity. In Philippians 4, sorry, I'm going back one. He talks in Philippians 4, 8. Again, he says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So what we are looking for, what God is looking for in a church, and what we should be looking for is quality. We're looking for a quality church filled with quality Christians. And uh, we may uh, that puts us in a little bit of a problem because if we say, well, that's us, then people go, well, you're a bunch of proud people. And if we go, oh, no, that's not us, oh, woe is us, then we can become quite dure and miserable, and we would never want that uh, to happen. So, we're going to look at uh, a few things. I think it's about six things in total that Paul encourages us to do as a church, and I've entitled it A Recipe for a Happy and United Church. Now, those of you who've been in disunited churches, or unhappy churches, you know how miserable that is. That's like your family. When your family's going well, your family's the best thing on earth. When your family's going badly, it's the most miserable thing on earth. And the church is very, very much like that. All churches will go through periods of strife and trouble, and how we deal with that and how we cope with that is hugely important. So, first of all, let's think about this rejoicing in the Lord. Now, where do I get that from the text? It's from the word... Uh, goodbye. Because the NIV and most translations translate this particular word goodbye. And there really isn't a good reason for doing that. Because the word literally means rejoice. It is a farewell. But it's a farewell ending. And, and in fact, Paul uses it as a greeting at least five other times where he's saying hello. And both his hello and his goodbye is the word rejoice. He's saying this is how I'm saying goodbye. This is how we say goodbye. Now, remember, he's writing to a group of people who he's had severe conflict with, who have called him lots of names, who have despised him and accused him, and he's had to say some pretty harsh things to them. And now he's saying, see ya, except he's saying it in this way. He's saying, rejoice. Um, I don't know if you picked up on this this week at all, but did you know that Dundee is the most miserable city in the world? <laughs> this is, yeah, I love this. This is brilliant. Somebody has done research, and they've researched search words on Google. And depression, misery, pain, and suffering are words more looked at by people from Dundee than anywhere else, apparently, that they looked at. So you're a miserable bunch. <laughs> and it's just and I'm looking at it and going, no. I'm going, that's because we're realistic. Other people live in a fantasy world. We live in reality. Um, but we don't want to be those miserable people. Now, the trouble is, you see, we don't want to be the opposite. And what do I mean by the opposite? The kind of people who, when you go up to them and you say, how are you? Or hello, they go, "Ha." I'm fantastic. How are you? And you're going, oh, please rescue me. Uh, Let me talk to somebody miserable because it's just so much better. Oh, I'm great. I'm wonderful. Everything's fantastic. Isn't it? Uh, No. This is not the goodbye greeting. Here's the goodbye greeting. He's saying rejoice, and it is right to put it, rejoice in the Lord's. Ian Jerry and the Blockheads, for those of you who are of that ilk, had a song, Reasons to Be Cheerful. Well, Christians have many, many reasons to rejoice. And you'll see Paul uses this several times, particularly in Philippians. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always, as we sang. I will say it again, rejoice. Now, this is really, really key. Really, really key that you understand and grasp what this actually means. Because most people rejoice in their circumstances or in what they have. You've had a good week. How has it been a good week? Well, because you've been healthy. Rejoice. Because you got a pay rise, rejoice. Because a new relationship started, rejoice. Because an old relationship was restored, rejoice. There are lots of reasons that bring us joy. That is natural and, of course, that is right. But what's fascinating is, for the Christian, the source of our joy and the reason for our joy, these things are peripheral. I've been really enjoying reading um, Tim Keller's book on prayer, and a couple of things in particular I want to share with you in this. this. This one I thought was, how did I not know this? You know, the kind of thing that you sometimes hear somebody preaching or Uh, Or you read a book and you've been a Christian for many, many years, you've read what they're talking about many, many times, and they say something, you think, How did I not know that? How did I not see that? Because when they say it, it's so obvious. This is what Keller says about Paul's prayers. It is remarkable that in all of his writings, Paul's prayers for his friends contain no appeals for change in their circumstances. It is certain that they lived in the midst of many dangers and hardships. They faced persecution, death from disease, oppression by powerful forces, and separation from loved ones. Their existence was far less secure than ours is today. Yet in these prayers, you you see not one petition for a better emperor, for protection from rewarding armies, or even for bread for the next meal. Paul does not pray for the goods we would normally have at the top of our list of requests. Now, that's hugely important. It's hugely important as well. You don't misunderstand it. Keller is not saying, and the implication is not, that to pray for these things is bad, to pray for health, to pray for day. Of course it's not, because we are commanded in Scripture to do so when we come to our Heavenly Father. But what he's saying, and this is surely correct, that we need a refocus of where our joy comes from. That our joy comes from the giver primarily rather than from the gifts. Again, let me quote uh, Saint Tim. Paul's main concern then is for their public and private prayer life. He believes that the highest good is communion or fellowship with God. A rich, vibrant, consoling, hard-won prayer life is the one good that makes it possible to receive all other kinds of goods rightly and beneficially. He does not see prayer as merely a way to get things from God, but as a way to get more of God himself. Prayer is a striving to take hold of God, Isaiah 64, verse 7, the way in ancient times people took hold of the cloak of a great man as they appealed to him, or the way in modern times we embrace someone to show love see that's why your prayer life is so pathetic because you see it as a way to get things but if you've already got things you're not going to ask for them so yes you'll come when there's a serious illness and yes you'll come when there's a particular concern but you're coming in a sense out of death sometimes God has to do that but you don't see prayer not as the way to get things or the way to change things, but the way to have communion with God. I love that illustration of taking hold of the cloak of a great man as they appealed to him, or we embrace someone to show love. See, that's why Paul, for the most important thing, Paul was concerned that they were healthy. He was concerned that they had enough material goods. He was concerned that they were free. He was concerned about all these things. He was concerned about the relationships. He writes about all these in this letter. But his primary concern is that in all their circumstances, they are able to have communion with God. My weakest point, and I suspect for most of you, your weakest point is, is precisely at this point. That it is this communion with God, this rejoicing in the Lord, that we miss out on. And yet, surely, that is the very essence and the very heart of our faith. Without you, O Lord, I have nothing. I have nothing. So as as a farewell greeting to these Corinthians, he's just saying... By Rejoice. Rejoice. And they're going, wait a minute, you've just given us a row. You've just told us that we have to collect money for the poor in Jerusalem who are starving. You've just warned us about all the troubles that are coming in the church. We've just had major bust-ups in this church, and, and you're saying to us, rejoice? And Paul says, yes, because your joy is in Christ. Your joy is in God's. It's a children's song. We, we, we kind of have it as rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. But that's the most profoundly difficult verse. And it's a most difficultly profound verse. But you grasp that. You get this. Then you have learned, as Paul says, the secret of being content in any and every situation. And then he says, aim for perfection. Or, again, the translation is difficult because it's this idea of striving for full restoration. It depends if it's a a kind of objective or a subjective thing. Is it something that God does for us or something that we do for God? And the answer is, I think in the context, both. Verse 9 of this chapter, he has earlier said, Our prayer is for your perfection. And what he's talking about here is, It really is. Restoration. They'd been battered. They'd they'd come into the Christian church. Marvelous ministry that Paul had in Corinth to start with. And it was dynamite. And it was fantastic. And it was powerful. And there were miracles. And there were people from different backgrounds being converted. And the church was going great. And then it went through a really rough patch and Paul is writing to deal with it. He's writing to deal with the sexual immorality. He's writing to deal with the misuse of charismatic gifts. He's writing to deal with the greed and with the drunkenness. He's writing to deal with the manifestation of human sin that's pouring in to the church. He's writing to deal with the pettiness in the leadership and the false apostles and everything. And you go through First and Second Corinthians, and Paul—I I, love—I just—I for me studying this has helped me understand Paul a whole lot more and I just love his attitude he's got such a miserable press Paul you know he's he's just seen as he's not the most attractive of characters for me I think he's a really really attractive character because he's just so real and he's so Christ-centered and what he does is he says aim for restoration they needed it. They needed to be restored to one another. They needed to be restored to Christ. They needed to be restored to Paul. It's God who does it. The the tense that he uses indicates that this is what happens. It's God who works in you to will and to work of his good pleasure. But isn't that, by the way, just a great remedy or a great recipe for our lives? First of all, we rejoice in the Lord. And secondly, we're aiming for restoration. Because I know that some of you are deeply, deeply wounded. You have been hurt. And let's be fair, you've hurt. You've been obnoxious. You've really wounded someone. And that relationship has been really disrupted in the fellowship, in your own home, maybe amongst others. And our tendency always is to bury it, to put it to the back of our minds, to ignore, to move away. And Paul says, no aim for restoration. Get it back. What you had. The joy that you first had when you first knew the Lord. The communion that you first had. And you're sitting there now like an immature child with his, whose arms are folded in the corner going, no, nah, I'm not going to do it. No, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to talk to them. I'm not going to do that. And Paul says, chill out. Rejoice. Aim for full restoration. And then he says, encourage one another. Listen to my appeal. And again, the word that's used there, it can mean admonish or encourage. Listen to the appeal that is there. (coughs) He had appealed to them to... Love the penitent wrongdoer. If you go through 2 Corinthians, go through 1 Corinthians as well, you'll find Paul's appeal there. Love the wrongdoer. Don't receive God's grace in vain. Break away from idolatry. Give to the fund for the poor in Jerusalem. And also, incidentally, the latter part is saying, change your attitude to me. I'm not a super apostle, but I'm, you don't need a super apostle. You need what I've got, which is the gospel. And he's saying, change your attitude. He's encouraging them to encourage one another in this, but also to listen to his appeal. Now, there is a fantastic um, recipe for a happy and united church to encourage one another. 1 Thessalonians five, eleven. therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. Don't allow immoral sexual practices. 1 Thessalonians 4, 8, encourage each other with these words. See, encouragement is not just going to somebody and telling them how wonderful they are. I really want to encourage you. You know, I really want to encourage the band. I think you're great. I really want to encourage people. I mean, best coffee I've had in years. Right. If you say that every week, it doesn't work because they don't believe you because it's not true, obviously. Encouragement is not just going about telling people how good they are. I have to say in a Scottish context, let me apply this in two different ways. If you're American, stop encouraging people. It really gets on our nerves. Uh, If you're Scottish, stop discouraging people. It really gets on our nerves. You know, a Scots, Andy Murray, we just say, whoa, right, you know. You you know what, Andy Murray? Everyone's going to put down Andy Murray. I kent his father. Now, if you're not from Scotland, let me help you understand this. This is a a very important expression. I kent his father. What that means is he could be number one singer in the world, he could be the number one politician, but boy, we know something about him that will really take him down a peg or two. I kent his father. And I don't know, it's something ingrained within our national psyche that we do that all the time. We just like everyone to be at the same level in the gutter. Uh, that's that's a, a characteristic. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm saying that as a Scot. But Paul's not saying, look, this encouragement is just going around telling people how great they are. What he's saying is that we build each other up in the faith. You see that First Corinthians five eleven. How do you encourage one another? They encourage people by not allowing sexual immorality. That's not very encouraging, is it? Yes, it is. That's the point. It's very encouraging because together we are keeping God's word, and together we are following Jesus Christ. Now, maybe, maybe, maybe it's wrong of me to put it as a particular Scottish characteristic. Maybe it's a human characteristic but i've noticed in church is how easily we soon fall into tearing people down to critiquing people and maybe we call it faithfulness maybe we call it prayerfulness i think the bible just calls it gossip and it's not helpful at all it's surely we need surely we need in the church more people like barnabas who was the son of encouragement you know what it's like there are some people whom even to have in your home they just they cheer you up because they are so encouraging in in the right and good kind of way and there are other people you kind of know that what they say is probably right but somehow they manage to bring gloom even into a wedding and and you just you know they may be right but you just wish they were somewhere they were right somewhere else um, we, we need to think of how we encourage one another in the Lord and we need to re- perhaps the most encouraging thing is to respond to exhortation how encouraging is it if you go and talk to someone and you're saying to them listen brother listen sister um, there's an issue here there's something that you've been doing that it's just not right it, it It's not what should happen in the church. It's not what a Christian should be doing. And you're thinking, okay, that's that relationship over. And instead, they listen, they heed the exhortation, and they change. How encouraging is that? Let's be responsive to exhortation. And then we are to be of one mind. Fascinating. Rejoice in the Lord, strive for full restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind. There's a unity here of outlook and action. Paul's wanting them to reject the false gospel of the false apostles. I plead with Eodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. See, again, there's the key. Paul's not saying, I want you all to be the same mind because I want you all to like the same thing because I want you all to do this. I want you all to be like a bunch of robots who just go along with whatever the predominant opinion is. He's saying, no, no. I want you to have the mind of the Lord. I want you to be united in what God wants. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We, he said later on, he says, we have the mind of Christ. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That's an incredible claim. That would be the most arrogant claim in the world. It would be the most blasphemous claim in the world. And it often is when people stand up and say, God says this or Jesus wants us to do this. And what they really mean is I feel this, I think this. But when we're able as a church to say we've got the mind of Christ that's fantastic that is why in this church over and over and over again you will get continual continual exhortation and teaching from the Word of God because that's where the mind of Christ is expressed and we have to be united around the scriptures dissension and strife kill the church but being of one mind heals and unifies the church. And then he says, live in peace. Live in peace. The cultivation of peace. Live in harmony with one another. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Romans fourteen nineteen. let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Peace doesn't just happen. Just by singing about the son of peace, just by giving the sign of peace, just by saying peace, it doesn't just happen. You have to make an effort to have peace. What a fantastic picture for the church, though. Well, I, I, for me, it's just a, just these very, very simple exhortations. Even as I'm looking at them, I'm thinking, okay, Rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. Wow. The church was like that. And you know, here I find the extraordinary thing. For me, the Lord's Day, Sunday, is the greatest day of the week. And here's why. Because I get to meet with my brothers and sisters. Because... Much of what Paul says here, I see. Now, I I see there are difficulties, and I see that there are problems. But when you've got something like that, it is so, so precious. Sometimes it's like your health. You don't even know you've got it until you lose it. Because there's a tremendous promise that goes along with it. The God of love and peace will be with you. Where love and peace exist, God is present. And nothing hinders our experience of God's presence more than the absence of love and peace. Calvin, who not many people would put down as the uh, apostle of peace, says this, where there is strife and contentions, there it is certain the devil reigns. The Holy Spirit never brings disunity and strife within the church. He allows it sometimes because... Some things have to be sorted out. But it's the devil. It's his purpose to bring disunity and disharmony. So I love that promise. Those five things and then that promise. And then the sixth thing, which uh, I've really loved looking at this. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Um, Murdo McLeod, the retired minister, used to be one of our elders. We used to joke about this. I hope he's not here. Um, and, and he'd get you at the door, and, and, and you're coming in, and he go, greetings, greetings, greetings. And it was just such an unusual greeting, but actually it was very biblical, and it was lovely. Greetings, greetings. And I, I think, well, that's the way it should be. First Corinthians sixteen twenty, All the brothers here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Romans sixteen sixteen, Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. 1 Peter 5, 14, greet one another with a kiss of love, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Okay, a couple of things about that. First of all, a holy kiss. It's a symbol of love and peace. It was to be holy. It was not to be misused. Sexual abuse does occur within the church because people misuse the intimacy that exists amongst believers, and we have to be aware of that. It is agape, agape, Self-giving love, not Eros. I thought about whether to say this or not, but I will say it. I think there's a lesson here for people who have abused, people who have been abused, people who really, really struggle with loneliness. I don't know how many times I've come across single women and single men who will say but my life is empty I need to get married if I don't get married this is desperate and they make themselves miserable because they don't see it happening or people who are same-sex attracted who come into the church and love the church and love the Lord but feel within themselves that they're attracted to somebody of the same sex and then all the pressures in our culture and society and sadly from within the church say to them, well, if you got that attraction, that's something that God has given you and it should be fulfilled and if the church doesn't let that happen and if the Bible says that that's too bad, just ignore the Bible or let's make the Bible say something else. Here is where I think this issue really, really hits home. When a person says, I'm single therefore I cannot express love because I'm not married and if I follow the Bible I should not engage in sexual relations until I get married or they say I'm same-sex attracted or homosexual or whatever you you say and they then say am am I condemned to be unloved and unloving? Are you saying my love is sinful? The answer to that I think is hinted at very clearly and is shown throughout 1st and 2nd Corinthians where Paul is saying don't go for sexual immorality don't do it. And he's saying it is sexual immorality and during the course of this letter he mentions marriage and he mentions sexuality but the answer to the question is saying is is to actually say the question itself is wrong because your understanding of love is wrong it's our culture that tells us you cannot have deep loving relationships unless you have sex that's rubbish it's absolute nonsense it's proven nonsense and yet people buy into it as an absolute christianity says you can have deep loving relationships that are loving and that are beyond eros It doesn't say that eros is wrong but it says that eros is not essential and i think that's where the love of god's people that's why we need not a shallow superficial trite church where we just meet on a Sunday and that's it. But that's where those who don't have children can look at all the children at the front and go, they're my children. And when a child is born, I am am going to rejoice as much, almost as if it were my own. That's where when someone is single and they're saying, well, I'm not married, does that mean I'm inferior? No, it doesn't mean you're inferior at all. And if a church hints at that in any sense whatsoever, there's something wrong with you because you're not yet married, then that's just terrible. And if somebody has same-sex attraction, I don't want you to think, oh, I'm condemned or you're having a go at me. It's not that at all. I'm saying there's a love beyond what you are looking for, which is far deeper and far more important. And that's what you've got to look for. I mean, this has happened. Sometimes a, a man will come or a woman will come and, and they'll say, I, you know, I'm really, really drawn. I'm really attracted to that person. I say, whoa, back off. They're married and so are you and you're not married to each other. Oh, but I'm so... No, it's wrong. You don't do that. You back... Well, how can I be fulfilled if I'm drawn to them? Too bad. And that's not being harsh. That's saying there's something much more profound and much deeper. You follow the shallow views of this world in terms of love and sex and sexuality, and you will end up with misery. And too often as a church, I think we address it in the terms of this world rather than in this terms now. How we got to that from a holy kiss, you can work out. Um, Because the holy kiss is the expression of the love that God's people have for one another. It's not a Judas kiss. It's a kiss that signifies reconciliation. Jacob, Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his necks and kissed him, and they wept. Now, how... We do this in the church all the time, don't we? We take something that's normal, we turn it into a ritual. Greet one another with a holy kiss. We are not going to start in this church the institution of kissing one another as part of our regular worship. Now is the time for the kiss. Because as a nine-year-old boy, I would never have gone to church again if that had happened. Um, and we're not going to do that because it's not a ritual. The, the kiss was the normal first-century greeting, J.B. Phillips translates it as only an Englishman could. A handshake all round, please. Um, Justin Martyr said, after the prayers, we embrace each other with a kiss. Tertullian, who was a bit more tight and concerned, then let the men apart and the women apart salute each other with a kiss. Though there's no indication that that was the particular emphasis in the New Testament church. But what he's saying is what you do, how you greet one another, you're into man hugs, do it. If you're a man, that is, of course. Um, greet one another with, as long as it's, your greeting is holy, it's done in love. It's appropriate to the context and the culture in which you are in. And it is lovely. I remember when I uh, started courting Annabelle, as they say in the old phrase of things, I, I went to find out about her people. And I hitchhiked around Lewis, which was great. It was just brilliant. I loved hitchhiking around Lewis. You can do to the island three or four times in a day. And it was great. I loved it. And uh, I went to church. But, idiot, I didn't think about how then, in those days in the free church in the islands, everyone was dressed very smartly, even for the prayer meeting. I turned up my jeans and a T-shirt. And I thought, oh, this is terrible. And then the minister stood up and he said, uh, Robertson, lead us in prayer, please. And I stood up waiting for, there was about four or 500 people there. And I waited for Robertson to start praying. Uh, Mr. Robertson, Edinburgh, lead us in prayer, please. And I thought, fair enough, we're the same guy. guy. And then somebody, one of the elders came and tapped me on the shoulder and said, "It's you. You better pray." So I prayed, and I was I stumbled. I didn't use the "in now." I used "you." I was just thought, "Oh, I was—I I just all over the place." So as soon as the praying finished, I went for the door to get out, and I thought, "They're going to kill me. They're going to kill me." And I, I got to the door, and I thought I'd got away, and I saw these two old ladies dressed in black from head to toe, the equivalent of burqa's, you know, the whole lot. And they come, zzz, they were like bullets aiming for me. And I thought, I've got to get away. I've got, and, and they got me. And they said, Mr. Robertson. And I said, yes. And I was expecting the tirade. And they said, we'll kiss you. And they did. They kissed me. And they said, will you come back for a meal with us? And I thought, what lovely old ladies! And they were absolutely fantastic. And to show, I was, to be honest, I'm from the east coast and I'm from the south. I wasn't expecting that level of um, affection, or even physically expressed. But it was lovely. I think what Paul is saying here is, don't let people go out of this church without being greeted. Whether right, it's the handshake at the door, or it's the hug in the pew beside you, if it's your culture, give them a kiss. That's fine. Don't let people go out without being welcomed and without being greeted. And especially your brothers and sisters, the visitors, yes, of course. But you see someone standing there on their own, go and welcome them and welcome them in this way. Look at it. Back to the not goodbye, but rejoice. It's a greeting and as a farewell. Hi, rejoice. Goodbye, rejoice. Please, can I I suggest this? Uh, As regards this church... After the service this morning, please don't just gather in the groups of the people that you already know, but speak to a stranger, even if they're not a stranger in the church. Church is a place to meet and to greet. Psalm eighty-five ten says this, there's a love, love and faithfulness meet together, righteousness and peace kiss each other. There's a unity and a harmony between man and God. It's incredible. There's a unity and a harmony that's expressed through the gospel. There's the kiss of God's love where righteousness and peace meet together, kiss together, that we can experience and know. And that then gets reflected in our relationships with one another. You want a happy church? You want a a united church? Then let's make sure That we do these things, that we rejoice in the Lord, that we strive for full restoration, we encourage one another, we're of one mind, we live in peace, and we greet one another as sisters and brothers in the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically please visit the website of Solus, the Centre for Public Christianity at solas cpcorg Once again that website address is S-O-L-A-S. Hyphen CPC ORG. Thanks for listening.